This week on A Nice Cup of History Tea, we're doing a request. Autumn Sastry, you wanted us to do episodes on what you're learning in school, namely Stalin and natural selection. Obviously not together. Well, no. Um, so first off, we're going to do Charles Darwin and his theory of natural selection. And in honour of the man himself, this week's ridiculous death is going to be a rather spectacular Darwin Award winner whose ingenious method of removing himself from the gene pool involved a party trick gone wrong. So, without further ado, let's get historical. Before we discuss the theory of evolution and natural selection, we should first talk about Charles Darwin himself. Born on the 12th of February 1809, he was the fifth of six children born to physician Robert Darwin and his wife Susanna Darwin, daughter of Josiah Wedgwood, he of Wedgwood pottery fame. Um, His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was one of the few scientists who argued in favour of the idea of evolution before Charles began his work. Erasmus died in 1802, seven years before Charles was born. Otherwise, imagine the work they could have done together. Charles originally studied medicine at Edinburgh University, but he found lectures boring and the ideas of performing surgery distressed him, so he began to neglect his studies. He joined the Plinian Society in his second year, engaging in study and debate around natural history and assisting in investigations around the anatomy and life cycles of marine invertebrates on the, in the Firth of Forth, which is an estuary on the Scottish River Forth. Um, he continued to find his lectures boring, however. His father was disappointed by his lack of progress in medical study and he moved Charles to Christ Cholet. Christ's College? Christ's College at Cambridge University to study for a Bachelor of Arts degree and start working towards becoming an Anglican parson, which is basically a, a priest, a vicar. Um, Charles, however, still preferred physical activities such as hunting and riding to studying. However, prior to his exams, he did apply himself and scored well. He began to develop an interest in studies of natural history and he had originally planned to travel to Tenerife with some fellow students post-graduation but he needed to prepare for such an adventure so he travelled to Wales with British geologist Adam Sedgwick. On his return he received a letter from friend and mentor John Stephen Henslow proposing that he accompany the crew of one HMS Beagle on an expedition to chart the coastline of South America. Beagle, maybe you've heard of it? It's a dog in it. Oh, wow. (laughs) The the placement would be self-funded, and his father was reluctant at first, believing it was a waste of time. However, Robert Darwin's brother-in-law, Josiah Wedgwood II, persuaded him to let Charles go and to also fund him for the journey. Despite some delays, the HMS Beagle set sail on the 27th of December, 1831. The journey lasted almost five years, under the command of of Captain Robert Fitzroy, The crew of the Beagle surveyed and charted the coastline. Darwin, however, was on land for most of it, studying geology and making natural history collections, keeping notes of his observations and speculations on his findings. He would send his specimens back to Cambridge for appraisal by more expert eyes and sent a copy of his journal with letters to his family. He kept extensive notes about marine invertebrates collected whilst on board. Despite suffering quite badly with seasickness, just like me, I vom all the time on a boat. I mean, it's it's not really something you want on a five-month sea voyage, is it? Five years. Five years. Yeah, five years. Sorry, sea voyage. Right. I can't even handle nine hours from Canada to the UK. Wow. On a plane. Yeah. 
anyway, um, he encountered different people and um, cultures throughout his journey. And despite the diversity that he saw, he stuck to the idea that humanity shared a common origin that developed over time and into various states of civilization that existed in each of the places that he visited. He began to theorise that there was no real gap between humans and animals, an idea that was a was at odds with common scientific conceptions of the time. Um, in a highly religious world, the notion that humans were not above animals and were in fact classed as animals went against what was wildly taught. Humans were meant to be created in the image of God, acting as stewards of, of the earth and all of his other creations, above animals, but not part of them. For Darwin to think different questioned his own Christianity, but the evidence was hard to ignore. He observed geological phenomena such as earthquakes and noted the effects that they had had on the landscape, the changes that each event created and from looking at other areas such as the Andes mountain ranges, he was able to deduce that the landscape had changed over time due to events such as this, creating the world around him as it was then. They then made it to the Galapagos Islands. He observed variations in the wildlife on the different islands in the archipelago and learned that one could tell which island a tortoise came from by variations in the shapes of their shells. He didn't collect any, though, despite the fact that they create them. Um, this is when he started to think what such variations and adaptations would mean to the origin of species, but he couldn't think of a mechanism for it that made sense. What was the point in species evolving and changing? What would they gain from it, or what would happen if they didn't evolve? In 1838, however, he discovered or came across the idea of natural selection. He still wasn't sure about this idea, so he only spoke to it, about it to a few close friends whilst he worked on developing the theory into something more solid. It took a long time for him to publish his findings, mainly due to a series of mysterious illnesses uh, made worse by stress. He managed to publish a number of books on geology and even a treatise on the study of barnacles and quickly established himself as one of the leading scientists of his time. And his account of the journey of the HMS Beagle was widely praised. He returned to his theory of evolution and in 1855 started work on a book that would explain the theory in as much detail as possible. He collaborated with Alfred Russell Wallace, a fellow scientist with a similar theory, and in 1858, together they put out a joint publication. Darwin abandoned his much more detailed work and instead wrote a much shorter one entitled On the Origin of Species. It was a hit, safe to say, and it was worked into six editions in Darwin's lifetime alone. He went on to publish a series of other books based on different aspects of the theory of evolution, showing that evolution has occurred with natural selection as the main cause. He wanted to demonstrate that modifications occurred over generations rather than as a result of the whims of a creator, effectively leaving the idea of God out of his theories, although without ever actually actively trying to disprove his existence, so he was walking a very fine line. As well as natural selection, he demonstrated cases of artificial selection, which is mainly common in domesticated species, where humanity has selectively bred certain characteristics into or out of species within its control to reach a desired outcome. So like um, breeding specific types of cattle to produce more milk or better, better meat, things like that. Um, though without ever really going to the extreme of creating a new species, just variants on the original. Um, in natural selection, however, the variations occur as a result of naturally occurring circumstances. With me so far? 
I get what you're saying. Cool. Despite devoting himself to work, bouts of his mysterious illness, which still hasn't actually been diagnosed, by the way, um, he still had time to think about family. And on the 29th of January, 1839, he married his cousin, Emma Wedgwood, at Mayor Hall in Staffordshire, before moving to their new home in London, where they raised ten children, with two dying in infancy. Um, Darwin did often worry when his children became ill about the risks of interbreeding and their having inherited his weak constitution, a a fear that seemed well-grounded when their daughter Anne Elizabeth Darwin died aged 10. This spurred him to look further into the effects of interbreeding on the development of species. Darwin's fame grew as his work developed, but he was met with his fair share of controversy. The idea that species developed independent of a creator or overall design went against religious doctrine. He maintained his belief in God, but became increasingly aware that religion itself may have been little more than a survival mechanism developed when civilization was in the tribal stages. He was passionately opposed to slavery and didn't believe that people of different races should be classed as distinct species and treated as lesser than any other, specifically indigenous races in the wake of colonisation. He often questioned whether human compassion in assisting those who were weaker to survive and procreate was going against the benefits of natural selection, and he wrote about his work in The Descent of Man. His theories went from strength to strength as other eminent scientists contributed to the study of what has become known as Darwinism. The more liberal members of the Church of England chose to interpret natural selection as another example of God's design. On The Origin of Species sold out the original stock of 1,250 copies when it went on sale on the 22nd of November 1859. Uh, Darwin's illnesses meant that he struggled to attend public debates on his work, but in each of the editions published in his lifetime, he addressed criticisms that faced this. His work, not his illness. On the 19th of April in 1882, Charles Darwin passed away as a result of heart failure due to angina and suspected... I think it's Chagas disease. It's not one I've come across before. Oh, God bless him. Um, He was telling his family that he was not the least afraid of death and asking them to remember how good they had been to him. After a public and parliamentary petition, um, he was buried in Westminster Abbey near Isaac Newton and John Herschel. His funeral was held on the 26th of April in 1882 and was attended by thousands of people. A fitting send-off for a brilliant mind. Absolutely. So, that was Darwin. But what about his theory? Firstly, why is it still called theory and not a fact? I thought it had been proved. Well, there are four main words that we should explain for the avoidance of any confusion. Firstly, there are laws which states what happens. For example, if I say that a species evolves, this is a scientific law because it happens. We can see that it happens. We can prove that it happens. Next, there is the theory, which is effectively the why. So the theory of evolution isn't saying that a species evolves. It's saying why it evolves, what the causes and effects are that result in and from evolution. With me so far? Kind of. I mean, this it is it's slightly confusing confusing so basically it's not saying it didn't it's not saying that this thing didn't evolve it's saying this thing this is how this thing evolved yeah it's like um law is the what or the what and the theory is the why Mm -hmm. so law is the sun rises in the east 
and the theory is why the sun rises in the east and not the west because of our position in relation to the sun and orbit. Um, a theory can never become a law but they're both thoroughly tested and can both be referred to as facts. So theory can't become law but law can be explained by theory. Um, then there's the hypothesis, which is an idea that hasn't yet been tested, but can be, and would become a law if it's proven correct and not disproved. Then finally there's belief, something that has either been disproven or can't be scientifically tested. For example, saying God exists is a belief because we can't prove it, but neither can we disprove it. Um, so, the theory of evolution is Darwin's explanation based on the evidence of why species evolved in the way they do. We're not going to cover the entire concept of the theory of evolution tonight. You don't have the time and we don't have the expertise. Instead, we're going to hone in on the principle of natural selection, which I personally find fascinating. So, what is natural selection? Well, it's the idea that certain environmental stimuli will affect the evolution of a species, causing it to either adapt to survive, form distinct branches of the same species with different characteristics, or go extinct completely, so either adapt or die. Um, probably the most famous example of this are Darwin's finches, also known as the Galapagos finches, and um, they were collected and studied by Darwin during the second voyage of the Beagle and are only found on the Galapagos Islands. Whilst not technically finches, probably more closely related to blackbirds, the finches that Darwin collected were examined with the help of an expert ornithologist, John Gould, and it was discovered that there were 14 distinct species, 12 of them being brand new species at the time, never seen before, with distinct variations in the shapes of their bodies and the lengths of their beaks. The belief is that they shared one common finch ancestor that first came over to the islands. Then, as time passed and the population grew, they began to compete for territory and food. If a species begins to compete, one of a number of things can happen. Either the species grows to an unsustainable level, uses up all the food and territory and dies out from either a lack of either or both, therefore becoming extinct, or the species can migrate to a new area, meaning that they face new challenges to adapt to the environment and what they used to eat before might now not be available. So, if we stick with the idea of the finches, let's say, for example, that the first lot of finches to arrive on the Galapagos Islands nested in the trees and only ate berries. Then one day, their numbers had swelled to the point where the berries were starting to run out and there wasn't enough tree space to go around. So, one group of finches decided to try and find more food and a new nesting space. So they flew to a nearby island in the, the archipelago. That's a cool world. world. word. Archipelago. Yep, it means a collection of islands. Fascinating. So, um, they flew to a nearby... Archipelago? Where there, were plenty, where there was plenty of tree space, but instead of berries, there were nuts and seeds. Most of the birds wouldn't be able to cope with this new diet. Their beaks would break, um, the beaks would be made for plucking and eating soft, squishy berries. But say there were four or five of these birds that had slightly sharper, stronger beaks that allowed them to crack the shells of the nuts and the seeds to get to the yummy goodness inside. Whilst the other finches died out, these finches were able to breed. Those of their offspring that inherited the sharp beaks survived, whilst the others died off. In turn, they bred until the only finches born on the new island had the right beaks to eat the right nuts and seeds. 
And then in time, another group breaks away. And this time there are no nuts, seeds or berries, but instead they have to exist on bugs and grubs. So their beaks become longer and even sharper, allowing them to reach into gaps in the trees and get their food. Still others move on and develop broader, stronger beaks for cracking open the shells of bigger nuts, or longer and more pointed beaks for digging into the ground to spear worms and bring them up to eat. As with the original groups, those that don't adapt die out, meaning that those that do can breed and create more of the same species. Let's look at another animal, the rat. They're not everybody's favourite, though I confess to having a soft spot for them. I mean, their little little noses. They are cute when you think of them as just a cute little rat animal, not that it's, you know, vermin. But whatever you think of them, you wouldn't be too amused at finding a rat in your kitchen now, would you? No, not, no, no, no. Exactly. So you might put down rat poison, for example. That would kill a couple, but then along comes a rat that the poison doesn't kill. Might make it sick for a while, but then the rat recovers. Now, the average brown rat can breed throughout the year, and a single female can produce up to five litters a year, with between 7 to 14 rats born in each litter. So, in the space of a year, a single female brown rat can produce between 35 to 70 offspring. If that female is immune to the poison, and so are the males she mates with, chances are good that at least half of her young will inherit that trait. So, in the space of a year, you would potentially have a tiny colony of rats immune to the poison. But food and toxins aren't the only things to have an effect. Indeed, one of the other main factors is environment. It is one thing that can't really be controlled, and until the Industrial Revolution, and possibly before, it was something that human activity didn't much impact. Now, however, it's a bit of a snowball effect, but we're not here to discuss climate change, just the effect it has on animal populations. Environmental change is when the area where a species lives changes over time, for better or worse. Sometimes as quick and as and a drastic change, such as with a volcanic eruption or an earthquake. Other times it's a more gradual change, like an ice age or global warming. Now, back to the idea of the finches to demonstrate this. Let's say another breakaway group moved away, and this time there were the same food, but no trees. So this group learnt to lay their eggs on the ground. But there are predators. Some of the birds had a certain type of plumage and body shape that enabled them to blend more effectively with their surroundings, meaning that predators couldn't spot them easily and they had a chance to get away and survive. Those that didn't became lunch. Those that could breed and pass the adaptions on to future generations. Now, there is a hell of a lot more to natural selection that we've uh, said here, but we've tried to make it as uncomplicated as possible In a nutshell, it's the principle of adapt or die. If you can't change well enough or fast enough, then you face extinction. So mutations and genetics can sometimes be the next step in evolution and can mean the difference between survival and extinction. And the ability to reproduce is paramount. Humans are currently going against natural selection, however. We have mutations that help us to adapt to our environment and lifestyle, such as darker skin enabling a person to live in hotter climates. Um, However, we also force those adaptations through the wearing of clothes that help us adapt to temperature changes by working to eradicate diseases that would otherwise work as a population control. Even something as simple as um, having your appendix... Now it's it's completely useless, but before it used to be something that we used to use to eat grass and seeds, 
but because we learned to domesticate animals we had that meat ready there so we didn't need to go out hunting all the time so we developed broader bodies instead of leaner frames and became farmers and um, like cultivationists instead of instead of actual hunters and the appendix became obsolete and now just occasionally tries to kill you um, I don't have one so no because yours did try to kill you it did <laughs> When natural disasters strike, we rebuild and we work to make them less of a risk in the future by building better or stronger structures. This has led to us being the dominant species on the planet, the apex predator with no known natural predators. We're at the apex, but should we be? If we were once again exposed as a general population to the need to fight for survival, would we be able to or would we go extinct? Ooh, deep, man. That's Game of Thrones and... Not Game of Thrones, that's the Walking Dead stuff right there. Exactly. Um, well, well, we'll leave you with that lovely bit of environmental philosophy, shall we say, as we discuss our ridiculous death. Have you ever heard of the Darwin Awards? I have, only through the work of this podcast. Well, for those of you who might not have heard, there's a, an irreverent award system called the Darwin Awards that go to people that successfully remove themselves from the gene pool so they they're not allowed to breathe their stupidity onto future generations um, by killing themselves in ridiculous and often idiotic ways basically the kind of thing where when somebody starts to tell the story and you know what's coming all you want to do is facepalm as the inevitable happens pretty much like my entire life yeah, I mean, you are on course for a Darwin Award. I, I love you, but no, that's, and I promise to write whatever happens on your tombstone so the future generations can have a laugh. I'm excited for this. <laughs> right, this is the story of Gary Hoy. Now, I'm it's, excited. It's a fairly recent one. Um, Gary was a respected Toronto lawyer and a philanthropist, and an all-round good guy. But sadly, he's probably now mostly remembered for his embarrassing death. Um, whilst attending the reception for a new articling students, he decided that he was going to demonstrate the strength of the boardroom's unbreakable windows by throwing himself against them. He'd done this a couple of times, bounced harmlessly off. He'd already done it once before that day, bouncing harmlessly off. However, this particular time, they proved a little less indestructible, shall we say, um, when he plunged 24 stories into the courtyard below. <laughs> He should have known better. He was he was a well educated postgraduate. He had a um, he was a perform a former professional engineer. He probably should have realised that anything that claims to be unbreakable will eventually break. Did he not learn when the Titanic claimed to be unsinkable? Apparently not. And apparently, um, yeah, he, he thought this would be a good idea. So, number one way of avoiding the Darwin Awards today. Don't throw yourself at a window if it claims, even if it claims it's an unbreakable window, and especially not when you're on the twenty fourth floor. Why would, what, what, why? It must have seemed like a good idea at the time. Wow. Yeah. So, <clears throat> would you like another one? Would you like another Darwin Award? Yes. These seem fun, not for the people who died, obviously, but, you know. Well, this one isn't... You get awards and you get honourable mentions. This person did not remove themselves from the gene pool. So they didn't die? No, they didn't die, but probably not the sharpest tool in the shed, so we'll do it again at some point. 
This, we don't know their full name, but this is just James the Geologist. Um, They worked in a geology lab and they were being bothered by a wasp's nest. Cleverly enough, they decided to uh, get up a vacuum cleaner and suck up all the wasps. It's fair enough, it gets rid of the wasps, they can't really fly away from it. I suck up spiders. Yeah, why not? Um, However, he was then faced with the problem of killing the insects inside without letting them out. So he he basically had a bag full of wasps, didn't know what to do with it. So what he actually did then is uh, he took a can of Raid spray and sprayed it down the nozzle of a vacuum cleaner. Vacuum cleaner generates heat. Raid is highly flammable. Oh dear... The vacuum ignited the aerosol and it burnt off all of his facial hair and burst the dust bag open. He then suffered a barrage of stings from furious wasps that had survived the explosion. (laughs) So, by trying to get rid of the wasps, he then actually let them all out. And blew his face up practically in the process. Yep. That is spectacular. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Now... Because we are a a history podcast, the final one is an historical uh, Darwin Award. Okay. This one goes to Sir Francis Bacon, philosopher, writer, scientist. And uh, it's proof that even the most intelligent people can remove themselves from the gene pool in pretty ridiculous ways. Um, Francis Bacon, for those that you don't know, was a noted 16th, 17th century philosopher, writer, and um, he also pioneered an early form of scientific method, so experimentation. Um, Whilst travelling by coach outside London, he came across the idea of using low temperatures instead of salt to preserve meat, which is what we do now with the fridge. And freezer. And freezer, yes. Um, However, he was quite impatient and he decided to experiment this by buying a chicken and stuffing it full of snow right there on the spot. Obviously, he was correct. Keeping food cold can prevent it from going bad. However, he caught a fatal case of pneumonia from his time spent outside in the cold and died. (laughs) So... (laughs) Wow. (laughs) In preserving the meat, he killed himself. But look at the legacy he left behind. Yes, for for the fridge, freezer, and the knowledge of pneumonia, thank you, Sir Francis Bacon. <laughs> wow. All oh, right. So, um, that's, that's it for today. We shall be back next week. We haven't quite decided on what yet. Any suggestions, um, comment on our Facebook page, which at the moment is still Tarbis History, but we are, we are working on that. Yeah, Facebook won't let us change at the moment. Yeah, we're we're appealing it. We'll find a way. But on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Cup of History. Yes, we are. And we have a new logo that you may have seen. Um, So, yeah, like, subscribe, follow, share and comment. We will love you forever. We are all, you can hear us. Obviously, you're listening to us now. But if you want to listen on a different medium, we have Spotify, Buzzsprout, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts on iTunes. And if you want if you want to let us know, give us a suggestion, then hit us up and um, Autumn. We hope that helped. Speak to you soon. Bye.